Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I have commanded you, so that you will love one another. Let me pray now for the message and ask that the Lord would bless us. Our Father, you have taught us that if we ask anything according to your will and in the name of Jesus, that you will do it for us. And so my prayer this morning is that you would exalt your great name. Father, we can sing songs and I can preach words, but only you can cause your name to be seen and exalted in the eyes and the hearts of people. So I pray that you would do that, Father. I pray that you would look as you are this morning, beautiful and glorious and great and gracious. And I pray, Father, that you would build up believers in their most holy faith. I pray that we would gain a greater sight of the life that you want us to live in Christ. And I pray that we would gain the desire and the power to actually walk in that life. And I pray that we would bear much fruit as we learn to live by the things that you're teaching us in these days. And I pray, Father, for any who are here today who might not know you and who might have an interest in you. Father, I pray for them that they would see your glory and that they would be persuaded by your spirit and not by any external or fleshly or worldly thing, but that they would see you for who you are and feel compelled to come and believe and to enter into the flow of love from the Father to the Son and to his people. I thank you, Father, for what you will do. I thank you for the fruit that will be born. I thank you for exalting your name and building up your church. In the mighty, the matchless, the merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In John chapter 15, Jesus lays out for us a way of life. And in that way of life, we can bear much fruit. We can bring glory to God And we can gain joy for our souls that will not fade away, but that will in fact last forever. And so in verses one through six, Jesus lays the foundation for this way of life. He teaches us that the only way to actually have life and the only way to bear fruit in this life is to be connected to him. It is to abide in him. It is to have communion with him. It is to be in relationship with him. And while we have something to do with this, while we have a choice to be made when we're confronted with the gospel, when we encounter the gospel, the truth of the matter is that we only come to abide in Christ because the Father causes us to abide in Christ. And if the Father does not act upon us, we will never have life. 
As the words of Jesus enter into the world and as the words of Jesus enter into our ears and as we believe in the things that Jesus has said, as we believe in the person Jesus is, the Father grants us life. And again, there is a choice that we have to make at that time, but the preeminent choice is the Father's choice. And that's what verses one through six are about. This is the foundation of everything Jesus is teaching. Abide in the vine by the grace of God in Christ and therefore have life. Therefore, bear fruit. With that, Jesus turns in verses 7 to 11 to talk about the relationship between those who are in him and God. He's trying to teach them a a way of, of life in this world. It's important for us to understand that when he turns, he's not talking to everyone in the world, but rather he's talking to those who believe in him. He's talking to those who have come to abide in him. He's talking to those who have life in him and who want to bear fruit in him and who want to glorify him by the grace of the Father. Specifically, he tells these people, he tells you and I, he tells those of us who truly believe to abide in him, to remain loyal to him, to put him first and to love him most. He tells us to let his words abide in us to dwell in us richly so that we're taught by them and shaped by them and guided by them and empowered by them. And then as we're shaped by the presence of Jesus and by the words of Jesus, both things, it's really helpful that we have a God who speaks. It's painful for people who've grown up with with parents who don't speak, who don't express themselves. It's a painful thing. So it's a good thing that we have a father that speaks, but it's even a better thing that we have a father that wants to be with us It's not great if you have a father that will speak to you but doesn't want to spend any time with you. But Jesus wants to give us his presence. He wants to give us his words. And as we're shaped by the presence of Christ and by the words of Christ, Jesus makes an astonishing promise to us. He says, ask me earnestly whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He is not telling us that we can get anything we want In our flesh, he's not saying that if you want a new car, you just pray for a car and pal, you'll get it. He is not saying that. What he's saying is that as you walk with me and talk with me, as you are shaped by me and taught by me, you're gonna learn to desire what I desire. You're gonna learn to want what I want. You're gonna learn to ask for things that are pleasing to me. And when you ask for things that are pleasing to me, I'm gonna grant them and the Father is gonna gain much glory from you. As Jesus answers our prayers, he tells us that we will bear much fruit and that that fruit will last. He tells us that we prove our relationship to him. We prove that we're in the vine because we're drawing on him in prayer and he's answering us in prayer and fruit is coming out. And this whole thing glorifies the Father because he's absolutely and ultimately responsible for it all. Beloved, this is the path of life that Jesus is trying to teach us now not just trying to help us understand it in our minds, but to live this with our lives. This is a path by which he's trying to, 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 to lead us to bear much fruit in this life to the glory of the Father and the joy of our souls. And with that in mind, he moves on in verses 12 through 17 now to talk about our lives together. So verses seven through 11 is about our lives with God. Verses 12 through 17 are about our lives together. He's speaking to those who are in him in these verses. And it's important that we understand that. He's not talking in verses 12 to 17 to people who do not know him, people who are not abiding in him. Rather, he's instructing his own and he's teaching them the way he wants them to live their lives together. Verses 18 through 25, which we'll look at after the Easter break, 
Jesus moves on to talk about how believers ought to function in the world and how we ought to to manage in a world that's hostile to us. But here, in verses 12 to 17, he's focused on us. And he's telling us, this is how I want you to live. In light of these great things, this is the kind of life that I want you to lead. And so I pray that we'll listen carefully to him now as we turn to verse 12. Jesus begins and says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then if you look down at verse 17, you'll see that he ends basically in in the identical way. He said, these things I have commanded you so that you will love one another. The heart of what Jesus wants from those who love him is that we would learn to love one another. And he doesn't simply want us to love one another as we would love each other, as we would do so normally in our flesh, but he wants us to love one another as he has loved us. That's, that's very key. Love one another as I have loved you, in the way that I have loved you. So this raises the question, how has Jesus loved us? And I think the most immediate answer to that is found in verse nine. So if you look up at verse nine, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So there's a train of love here, beloved. There's a flow, there's a fountain of love. The Father has loved the Son, and in the way that the Father loved the Son, the Son has loved his own. And now he turns to his own and says, I want you to love each other in the way that I have loved you. But, but we have to back up and ask a question first, and that is, how has the Father loved the Son? Because that's the key to the whole way of life that Jesus wants us to live. The whole fountain begins at the love of the Father for the Son. Now, strictly speaking, I think it's impossible to answer this question, how has the Father loved the Son? Because we cannot even imagine the magnitude and the flow of the love of the Father toward the Son, much less articulate it. We never ever for all eternity will fully comprehend the love of the Father for the Son. It is an infinite love. It is an ever-flowing love. It is a life-giving, ceaseless love that is beyond comprehension. And yet there are some things we can say. We can say that however full, however great, whatever the details are of the Father's love, that the Father has lavished the fullness of his love upon the Son for all time and eternity. He has held nothing back. The Father has loved the Son without reservation, without limitation, and without end. And since this is so, the Father expressed his love when Jesus was walking on this earth. First of all, there's probably something before this, but the first thing that came to my mind was at Jesus' baptism when the Father audibly spoke in the hearing of other people. While Jesus was being baptized, he came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. And God the Father actually cared so much for his son that he spoke out loud and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That means that the fullness of the Father's pleasure rests upon the son. In the days of the kings, you, you will remember if you've read the books of kings where it says this king was, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, this king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so on and so forth. Those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord received a, a kind of similar commendation, but they didn't receive it until the end of their life, until the end of their reign. But here, the father is so confident in the son, the father has so poured his love upon the son that he fully endorses the son before a day of his public ministry has even began. The pleasure 
of the Father is absolutely upon the Son, so much so that he dared to speak it out loud in the hearing of other people. And then as Jesus began to engage in public ministry, he himself has taught us that the Father expressed his love for Jesus by revealing to him his works and his words. The Father did not hide himself from the Son while he was on this earth, but the Father revealed himself to the Son. The Father said to the Son, here is what I, where I am, this is what I am doing, this is what I have to say to the world. And so Jesus has said multiple times, and we have seen multiple times over the last months, that he only did the things that he saw the Father doing. As the Father revealed his works, the Father involved Jesus in his works. And Jesus only spoke the things that he heard the Father saying. Not a word came out of his mouth but what he heard the Father saying. This is the level of his submission to the Father. This is the level of the Father's love for him. He gave him all the words that he needed to speak in his ministry. Jesus never had to stress out about what am I going to say in this situation? What am I going to do in this situation? All he had to do was look to the source. All he had to do was surrender to his Father, and the Father perfectly led him. And beloved, what I'm trying to help us see is this is an expression of the massive love of the Father to the Son. Then in the middle of his ministry, Jesus took three of his closest disciples up on a hill. Peter, James, and John were there, and there they saw Jesus' body literally, not figuratively, literally transformed so that he physically shone with the glory of God and it says that his face shined brighter than the sun. They saw the glory of God in Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. And there, while Jesus was being revealed to them, Moses stood on one side, Elijah stood on another side, and Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke with them, audibly spoke with Moses and spoke with Elijah. Wouldn't you love to hear what was said up there on that mountain that day? I would love to hear what they said, but there's a more important word that was said, and it's the Father himself. Matthew tells us that while they were standing there, a cloud, a bright cloud, the, the very glory of God enveloped them, and out of the cloud spoke a loud voice that again said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The fullness of the pleasure of the Father, was on the Son, is on the Son, will be on the Son forever and ever and ever. I recently listened to a clip of a very famous person who at the height of his fame said he was still doing everything he was doing to get the approval of his Father. And now he's been on a descent from fame, he's still famous, but he's on a descent from fame and his dad is now dead and he said he had to admit he's still doing everything he's doing to get the acceptance and the pleasure of his father and he'll never get it, he'll never get it. Jesus Christ had the fullness of the pleasure of the father upon him forever and ever and ever and he will have it upon him forever. And I think the most amazing expression of the love of the Father upon the Son, while the Son was upon earth at least, is when Jesus came to his time for dying. When Jesus was arrested, when he was tried, when he was convicted, when he was crucified, when he was put in the grave, when he was buried like a normal dead person, oh, the Father's love was lavished upon him by sustaining him in the midst of his suffering. 
The author of Hebrews said that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. In other words, the Father was with him, the Father was on him, the Father was sustaining him. And even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of people trying to kill him, he was witnessing to the love of God to some of these people, and some of them became saved. Even in his time of suffering, God was using him outside of himself, and that is just an amazing expression of grace. If you've ever suffered profoundly, you will know that one thing that happens when you suffer is it's really difficult to see beyond yourself. It's just so hard. Even if you want to, it's so hard. But Jesus received this tremendous grace from the Father to endure the cross and everything surrounding it, and also not to be inordinately focused on himself. It's just stunning to me. And then perhaps the ultimate sign of the pleasure from the Father to the Son while the Son was on the earth is the fact that the Father caused the Son to rise from the dead. That's a pretty strong sign, isn't it? That's a pretty powerful expression of love. You died, you were buried, and I'm not okay with that. So I'm going to bring you back to life. I'm going to cause you to be the conqueror of death. I'm going to cause you to take your heel and crush the serpent forever. I'm going to cause you to do that. I'm going to vindicate everything you have done. I'm going to vindicate everything you have said. Beloved, the resurrection is perhaps the most profound expression of love from the Father to the Son. I don't know all that could be said about the, father for, uh, the love of the Father for the Son, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Father has held nothing back. He has loved the Son without reservation, without hesitation, without limitation, and without end. The fullness of his love is on this one. And Paul, in Colossians, helps us understand even more about this. So let me just read a few verses for you. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the one that makes God visible. He is the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he has the primary place in everything in in existence. He has position number one. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him. If things are created for Jesus, this can only mean that Jesus is God. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And why all this? Well, Paul says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's one thing to express love from father to children by giving things, like everything I own belongs to you, that's one thing. The father has done a much greater thing. He has invested the entirety of his being into the son. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in the Son. And this can only mean that the fullness of the Father's pleasure is upon the Son. I want to encourage you, beloved, to contemplate the love of the Father for the Son. It is the fountain of life. We're going to see this more in chapter 17, but it is the center of the center. It is the fountain of life. From this eternal fountain of life, Jesus has also loved his disciples in the same way his Father loved him. How is that? 
He loved his own disciples without reservation, without limitation, and without end. Now again, he's talking about those who the Father has caused to abide in him. There is a sense in which Jesus loves the entire world, but there is a sense in which he loves his own in a way that he does not love anybody else. He has a special love for those who are in him. And that, the love that he has for those who are in him is the love that the Father has for the Son. Everything the Father has invested in the Son, the Son pours upon his own. You ever wonder if God loves you? Well, if you're in Christ, God loves you with a magnitude of love you cannot imagine. Everything Jesus has received from the Father, he has poured upon those who are his own. This is just stunning, beloved. And it is the greatest possible love, as Jesus said in verse 13, if you look at John 15, 13. He said that greater love has no one than this, that, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now the Lord, even as the Father had expressed his love to the Son in a variety of ways, Jesus has expressed his love for us in a variety of ways. But I don't think there's anything greater than this, that he laid down his life for us. Now he stated this as a general principle, right? He said greater love has no person than this. He didn't just say greater love uh, has no one than the love I have, but certainly he has himself in mind. He's drawing on a general principle to make a greater point. I'm sure all of us have friends. Some of us have some very close friends. The height of our expression of love to another friend would have to be the laying down of our life. If we ever got in a situation where Kim's life was threatened and the only way I could save her life was to give my life, I pray that God would give me the grace to do that, but that would be the ultimate expression of friendship, would it not? It's easy to say that you're somebody's friend, but if you're literally willing to stop breathing and living on the earth for your friend, that's friendship. And that does happen at times from people to people, but I think that Jesus is drawing on a, greater principle, on a general principle to make a greater point because Jesus himself is loving us with a love that is not normal, it's not usual. And Jesus is laying down something that none of us could possibly lay down because of the nature of who he is, beloved. Jesus is drawing on a greater love than anyone could ever imagine, and he was about to demonstrate a love greater than anyone could ever conceive. He, the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, was about to give his all so that those who believe in him might gain all through him. I might lay down my life for Kim someday, but through my death she will gain almost nothing. Through the death of Jesus Christ and belief in him, we gain everything, beloved. His love is an unusual love because its source is unusual and it's the, just the nature of who he is is unusual. There is no greater love than Jesus laying down his life for his friends. No greater love. Now the word for friends there, you'll see it in verses 13, 14, and 15. It can actually be translated loved ones, and so I just want to make sure we're not hearing this as buddies or something like that, or companions. The word means more than just acquaintances, more than just people you sort of hang out with from time to time. When Jesus talks about laying his life down for his friends, he, he really means his loved ones. And he's pitting this word against the word servants, as you'll see there. He's saying that while he was the rabbi to his disciples, they were not merely servants in his eyes. They were his loved ones. In his day, it was normal for the disciples of a rabbi to be the servants of a rabbi. Jesus said, I'm not going to deal with you like this. I'm going to deal with you like family. 
You're my loved ones, not just my servants. He was the king to everybody whom he was talking to up in that upper room. He was indeed the king of kings, and that's why he was not ashamed to receive the praise of the people on Palm Sunday. He was not ashamed. And yet he said to his disciples, here, I'm not going to treat you like just my subjects, because you're more than the subjects of a king. You have become my friends, because the love of the Father has flowed to the Son and from the Son to you, and that Love causes you to be more than subjects, more than servants. It causes you to be friends. Beloved, as the Father has taken great pleasure in the Son, so the Son has taken great pleasure in those who belong to him. And if you belong to him, you need to take this personally. This is about you as well. The love of the Father to the Son is now flowing upon you. Now we need to look at verse 14 and consider what Jesus said there could be potentially confusing, and I want to make sure that we're clear about what he's saying in verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends if indeed you keep what I, if you do what I commend. There are people out there who will talk about the unconditional love of God, and I will tell you those people have never read the Bible carefully. There are conditions to the love of God in Christ. There's a sense in which God loves everybody, but there's a sense in which that he says, if you want to come into my life, if you want to come into my favor, if you want to have my blessings, if you want to know me, if you want to bear fruit in me, if you want to have eternal life in me, you must. And then there are conditions. There are. One of them is right here. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. But we have to be very careful here, beloved, because if we get this wrong, we're going to get the gospel wrong. You could read that sentence to say that my obedience is the occasion by which I become a friend of Jesus, so that if I obey, I'm Jesus' friend, and if I don't obey, I'm not Jesus' friend. You can understand it to mean all the weight is on my shoulder and my obedience is everything. My obedience is determinate. But this is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, the whole message of the gospel is that you cannot possibly earn favor with God. People throughout the centuries have tried and failed and tried and failed. It is impossible. What Jesus is saying is that if you are my friends, you're going to bear the fruit of those who are my friends. You're going to act like it. The, the, the fact that you come more and more and more to act like my friends shows that you are my friends because obedience in the flesh is actually impossible. To do anything pleasing to God outside of a relationship with Christ is impossible. So Jesus works his obedience outside of us, and then he works his obedience inside of us. Jesus accomplishes all righteousness for us, and then he imputes his righteousness to us, and then he trains us in his ways. Obedience is a necessary part of walking with Christ, but beloved, it's a, it's a fruit and not the roots. We don't earn our relationship with Christ by obedience, but we display our relationship with Christ by obedience. And it's very, very important that we understand this. He's saying, you are my friends if your life is characterized by the things that characterize the life of my friends. If you care about the things of God, if you care to be in the presence of God, if you care to listen to the words of God, if you care to understand and embrace and walk in the ways of God imperfectly, though you are doing those things, then you are my friends because you're bearing the fruit of those who are inside of me. And then with that, in verse 15, Jesus helps us understand one of the primary benefits of his friendship here on the earth. It's crucial to their life together. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. And isn't that just right? 
How many of you have been employees and you're doing what your bosses tell you to do, but you really don't get where all this is going? You don't really get the big picture of what they're up to. You're just doing what you're told and they don't owe you an explanation. But Jesus said, I have called you friends because all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. One of the primary ways the Father showed his love to the Son was by revealing himself to the Son. The Father said, Son, here I am. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm up to. And then the Father involved the Son in everything. And now the Son is allowing this love to flow to the next level. Now the Son is treating us in the way that the Father treated him. And the Son is saying, as you walk with me, as you talk with me, as you listen to me, as you draw near and wait upon me, I'm going to open your eyes to see things. I'm going to help you see what I'm doing in your world and in the larger world. I'm going to help you understand the words that I want you to speak in your family and in your city and in your church and in the broader world. I'm going to help you see what I'm up to and I'm going to involve you in what I'm up to. I'm going to treat you the way that the Father has treated me. I hope you can see, beloved, in verse 15, a tremendous flow of love from the Father to the Son and then from the Son to his own. It's really stunning, beloved, and there is no greater love than this. There is no greater love than that Jesus would lay down his life for us and then involve us in his way of life. Bring us into the very love of the Father and of the Son. There cannot be a greater love than that. And because of this, Jesus, in verse 16, reiterates at least the essence of what he said in verses seven through 11. Verse 16 is a repetition, but it's not mere repetition. It's very important. So let's read it, and then I want to draw a few lessons out of it. Jesus said to those who know him, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that it should remain, that it should last, that it should endure, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So let me draw three things out of here. First of all, while all of Jesus' disciples do make a choice to follow him or not to follow him, I remember as clear as a bell, I remember October 26, 1986, about 2.30 a.m. in the morning when I made the decision to follow Jesus. That was a legitimate choice that I made. Every disciple of Christ has a choice to make. However, the truth of the matter is that Jesus first chose us before we ever even thought about him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And then in the heat of the moment, when we are presented with the gospel, or in my case, I was confronted with the gospel because I was a rebellious person who needed to hear that God was not pleased with me at the moment. When I was confronted with the gospel, I decided to believe, but that's because God gave me the grace to believe. I did not choose Jesus. He chose me. And if you know Christ the essence of your life in him has to do with his will toward you and not your will toward him. Of course you have a part to play. Of course you have a part. But had he not chosen you, you would never, ever have chosen to follow him. And I hope you hear that, not as an exclusive kind of a message, but I hope you hear that as a hope-filled kind of message because if he chose me, guess what? It's probably gonna stick, don't you think? He doesn't choose and then change his mind. He doesn't choose and then become overpowered by his enemies. When he chooses, his choice is final. Second thing, having chosen his own, notice what Jesus did. He appointed his own to go and to bear fruit. He appointed us to walk in obedience to him. 
He appointed us to go into the world even as the Father had sent him into the world to do the works of God and to speak the words of God. He appointed us to do his works and even greater works than these as we learn to walk by faith in him for the glory of the Father. He appointed us to bear much fruit that he says will not spoil or fade, but that will endure, that will persevere. Every piece of fruit that you bear in Christ, beloved, will endure forever. It will bring you joy forever. It will bring glory to the Father forever. The fruit that God bears cannot actually fade away. And Jesus appointed us to do these things. And I hope you can see, I hope you feel in your hearts that if Jesus is the one who appointed us to go into the world and bear fruit, the heavy lifting is on his shoulders, not on our shoulders. The call here is not for us to go into the world and do things for Jesus. The call here is for us to surrender to Jesus and let, us, let him do his works through us. He has already seen all the fruit you will bear in your life, so just surrender to him and let him have his way. Let him bear the fruit in you that he has appointed you to bear. Oh, beloved, the authority is in his hand and the burden is on his shoulders, not on our shoulders. Third, on this solid rock foundation, Jesus again tells his friends how to bear fruit in the world. He tells them that by praying to the Father in the name of the Son, they can receive that for which they ask. In other words, beloved, The fruit of the vine is the product of the love that flows from the Father to the Son and then from the Son to his own. As they learn to call upon his name and ask for his will to be done in the world, the yes of the Father to the prayers of the saints is the fruit of the vine. The yes of the Father to the prayers of the saints is the visible proof that we are in Christ and we are in this tremendous, infinite flow of love from the Father to the Son and from the Son to us forever and ever. The pleasure of the Father is displayed by answering our prayers. When he tells us time and time and time again, this is now the third time that he's told us that we can pray for whatever is in our hearts and that he will give it to us. Again, he is not giving us a license for our flesh. What he's doing is giving us a license for the kind of fruit that proves our relationship to him. He's giving us a license to be shaped into his image. Now, this brings Jesus back full circle in verse 17. You'll see he reiterates himself there again and says, these things I have commanded you. I'm teaching you all of this now so that you will learn to love one another. And I hope that we can see that Jesus is now adding a third stage to the process. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves his own. And now he's saying to his own, all of you love one another with this same love. With the love of the Father to the Son and the love of the Son to you, take that same love and love one another in the way that I have loved you. And how is that? Love one another without reservation, without limitation, and without end. Of course, love is complicated at times. There's all kinds of shades to what we must do to show love to each other. But generally speaking, this is the principle. Turn toward the source. Turn toward the fountain. Receive from the Father. Receive from the Lord Jesus Christ and then give the love that you are receiving to one another just in the way that you have received it. Freely you have received and now freely give. Open your mouth wide to receive. Open your hands wide to give. Later, 
Jesus would lead the apostles to write at some length about how this love ought to look in our lives together as churches, as the people of God. And if you're hungering for practical things this morning, I I have compassion for that. I'm not going to go into that. But if you want some practical things, I want to encourage you to go to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. There's so much to chew on in Ephesians 4 and 5 that you could literally spend a lifetime figuring out how to live in those things. So there's a practical place for you. But for now... As I have prayed over this text, I think that Jesus more so wants us to see and savor the source of our love than the particulars of our love. The particulars of how we love each other really matter. And I'm not saying that it doesn't matter, but you know what matters more? It's the source of our love. We have to see the source. If you don't see the source, you miss the whole point. If you don't surrender to the source, you'll have no desire and no power to love, beloved. He wants us to contemplate the source. And as we do, we'll gain all the eagerness, all the wisdom, and all the power we need to love one another in a way that is glorifying to him and truly upbuilding to the body of Christ in the world. So I wanna encourage you again, look to the source and open your mouth wide to receive it. Contemplate more. I've just given you a little glimpse of the love of the Father to the Son. I wanna urge you to contemplate that more. Think about that because that's actually the fountain of your love for one another. I wanna urge you to contemplate the ways in which the son has loved his own, and the ways in which he, he has lavished himself and all of his resources on those who belong to him, and then I wanna encourage you to just eagerly lavish that love upon one another. You know, love doesn't actually need a lot of rules. It doesn't need a whole lot of guidance. I think the main thing love needs is to turn to the source to look to the source, to receive from the source, to learn from the source. There you will gain all the power, all the desire, all the wisdom you need to love horizontally. Now obviously, we do need some instruction. That's why the New Testament is there. And I encourage you to to read those things. But again, the more important thing is to look toward the source and receive that source. If you're finding it hard to love right now, I wanna encourage you to turn toward the Lord I think one of the reasons we find it hard to love is because somehow or other we've cut off the flow. We've turned a little bit to the side. Maybe not completely away, but we've turned a little to the side so that the the flood of God's love is sort of banking off of our shoulders in the sight of our head. And the Lord would just say, turn back toward me, turn back toward me. Sometimes love is hard because you know what? Love is hard. But there's a way to proceed forward in love if we'll turn toward the source. So I wanna encourage you, if you're finding it hard to love people in your world, turn toward Jesus, contemplate Jesus. Think first, not about what you're supposed to do, think about what he has done. And there, you're gonna find the resources that you need. Maybe you're actually a person who's finding it hard to be loved. There's a lot of reasons why we find it hard to be loved, some of which we're culpable for, some of which it's just a matter of how we grew up or how we were treated. Some of you were abused, some of you were so deeply hurt you don't even know how to receive love. You can hardly believe that you're lovable. And I just wanna encourage you in just the same way. Learn to stop thinking about yourself and turn toward the source, look to Jesus. He gave no caveats. He did not say, I love you, except for those of you who are really broken. He did not say that. In fact, I think those of us who are really deeply, powerfully broken, which I would be in that company, 
I think we receive, uh, uh, my, one of my mentors used to say, EGR, it's extra grace required. I get a, more of a flow because I have more needs. I, I'm just deeply wounded inside in some ways. So the love of Christ flows to me in special, particular, custom-designed ways. Your brokenness is not an impediment to God's love. So just turn to him. A week ago, Mike Perry and I were at a conference together in, in Wisconsin, and we heard Claude King, a guy who wrote, uh, co-wrote a book called Experiencing God with Henry Blackaby. And he said to the group there, he said, Christians are products of their future, not products of their past. Christians are destined by their future, not by their past. So, of course, we have to look to the past. We have to think about what's happened to us in the past We have to pray about that. We have to heal from that. But we are not defined by our past. We are defined by our future because we are defined by the love of God in Christ, period, and end of story. And so if you find it hard to be loved, I just want to encourage you, turn toward the source. Open your mouth wide. Let the river flow into your life. I know it will not be easy. I know it's not necessarily just that simple, but I do think in some ways it is that simple. Learn to turn toward the source, and let him love you. Beloved, as I said to you last week, it amazes me that the Lord has us in this part of John at this particular time of our lives together as a church, as we're praying about and moving toward a a more permanent presence in the city of Elk River. I think it's imperative that we learn to live by these things. It's imperative that we learn to walk in these ways. Jesus is not simply teaching us abstractly, rather he's trying to teach us to actually walk in this way together. And the entire movement from rented facility to non-rented facility, or at least long-term lease facility, whatever God gives us, the entire movement is really just an excuse to build this way of life in us. It's really just an excuse to build faith. It's an excuse to glorify his name and bring much joy for our souls. Because I think that the way the Lord is going to do whatever he's going to do in these coming days is by teaching us to call upon his name and bear his fruit. A couple weeks ago, I was praying and asking the Lord to help us put feet to these things as a church. I felt concerned that if we just talked about it on Sunday, that it would sort of just fade away into the last 10 years of sermons and you know people might enjoy it and appreciate it in the moment, but then sort of forget about it and move on to the next thing. So I was asking the Lord how we could do something at GCF that would solidify this way of life in us. And I got the idea to have a special time of emphasis in prayer and fasting from Easter to Pentecost, which is April 1st to May 20th. That's 50 days. And so I uh, put this by Pastor Kevin, I put this by the building team, and everybody felt like it was a good idea. And so this week, David and Carmen Gunnerson are gonna finish up a little prayer guide that we're putting together for 50 days of prayer from April 1st to May 20th. Next week, I'll have available for you a little guide by Bill Bright on prayer and fasting that has absolutely shaped my life. I got to actually get my first copy of that book directly from Bill Bright. I met him uh, uh, like in 2000 or 2001. He handed me a copy of it, and he told me that at Campus Crusade, they allow people to distribute that booklet without any further permission. So I'm going to have copies here for you. Just know that we have permission to make copies, but it is the most helpful small guide to fasting and prayer that I have ever seen partly because it's so simple and it's so easy. But the point of these 50 days is that we would spend special time calling upon the name of the Lord together as a body to ask him to have his way among us and to do his will among us. The point of these 50 days 
is that we would look to Jesus and allow him to shape our hearts and shape our minds so that together as a body, we learn to pray in accordance with the will of Christ and then we watch him pour out his grace upon our lives. The point of these 50 days is that we would bear much lasting fruit for the glory of God, mainly by the way that that fruit came about. So, beloved, I'm very excited to see what the Lord will do among us over the next eight weeks. I feel in my heart and as I pray that God's going to do things that are beyond our imagination. And here as we close, I want to just tell you about one of those things that's already happened that was beyond what I was already thinking. Most of you know that a couple months ago I was elected to be the chairman of the ministerial here in Elk River, which is the, the board of all the pastors in the city we meet about once a month. I was elected to that post in January, and as soon as I was elected, I knew that the Lord had called me to call the Church of Elk River to live a life of prayer that is deeply rooted in the Word of God. I just knew that. And so I brought a devotional to them on the day I was elected from John 15. We talked about these very things, and I was very touched by the, the nature of the response from the pastors. There was an excitement in the room. People wanted to be led by somebody to live a life of prayer and to bear much fruit together as the church. February's meeting I had to miss, but this last Wednesday was our next meeting. And my heart was to bring a word to them from John 14, 12 to 14. I wanted to talk to them about the greater works of Jesus because even for pastors, that's a very confusing text. And so I wanted to show them how the greater works of Jesus really don't have to do with the works, but they have to do with this life of communion that Jesus was living with the Father and that now he's teaching his people to live with him. And as I was driving to the meeting, I prayed and said, Lord, is there anything else you would have me say? Is there anything else you want me to do? Is there anything else you want me to lead in or whatever? And the idea popped in my head to invite the whole church of Elk River to join us in fasting and praying from April 1st to May 20th. I thought, what the heck? The worst that could happen is they would say no, right? So I laid it out before them, and I told them, it's, you know, it's such a late hour here, it'd have to be pretty informal, but I just wonder if y'all would be interested in, in having a special season of prayer and fasting from April 1 to May 20th, and then maybe after that we could have a citywide worship service or something like that. We'll just sort of see what comes about as we seek the Lord. And I was, I was really taken back by the level of response from the pastors. It was immediate excitement. But it was that sort of Minnesota excitement. It was, it was sort of like, yeah, we're very, very excited about this. Very excited. And I told them, I teased them a little bit. I said, you know, in California, people would be jumping up, and you guys are just like, we're very excited about this, you know? And so one of the pastors said, let's take a vote to, to agree that we're all excited. So we did. We took a vote, and we agreed that we're all excited. A couple of the pastors after that meeting came up to me. These are long-term guys in the city. Came up with tears in their eyes telling me that they had been praying for this very kind of thing to happen, that somebody would take the leadership of the ministerial and lead them in a certain direction, and God is using me in that way, and I say this not to stroke my ego, I say this to, to demonstrate this point, beloved. This idea came to me while I'm driving to the meeting saying, Father, what would you have me do? This is not a plan of mine. This is something God is up to. God is using this little church already to influence the churches in this city. And I just want us to see it, beloved. What Jesus is teaching us in these texts is coming to pass before our eyes. He's involving us in his works in our city. He will certainly involve us in his works around the world. And I am just so excited to see what he will do. The particulars are up to him. I'm more excited about the process. 
I'm more excited about us learning to surrender to our Father and to call upon his name and to see him cause us to bear fruit in this particular way. So let me take a little time now to pray for us in that way. And I think I'm just gonna give you a little bit of silence here to pray before the Lord and then I'll open in in prayer and we'll sing our closing song and be done. Father, I'm very grateful to you that you are a God who speaks and who reveals himself. I'm profoundly grateful to you for putting the fullness of your love upon the Son. And Lord Jesus, what can possibly be said for the grace that it would take for you to empty yourself and to come to the earth and take on flesh and having taken on flesh to be a servant all the way to death on a cross? What can be said to you in thanks that you demonstrated the greatest love by laying down your life for us. What can be said to you that you have allowed the river to flow from the Father to you and from you to us? And what can be said to you that you give us this grace, you give us this opportunity of also being a river rather than a reservoir and of letting that love flow to one another? You allow us not just to be recipients but to be givers and I, I just don't know how to say thank you enough for that, Lord. It is the greatest privilege in the world to be caught up in this flow of eternal love. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for teaching us. And I pray that you'd give us power to walk in these things. I also thank you, Father, for this time in our life as a church. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you're teaching us. I thank you for the influence that you're giving us in the broader city and perhaps even around the world. I thank you for the things that you will do as we call upon your name from April 1st to May 20th. Lord, I don't know all of what you have designed, but that is exciting for me because you're the one that's in control. You're the one who's gonna lead us in the way that you have already appointed. You're the one that's gonna cause us to bear fruit for the glory of your name. And so we give you our thanks, Father. We give you our praise. Before we see all that fruit with our eyes, we give you our thanks because surely you're at work in our lives. In Jesus' great and gracious name, we anticipate all these things, we ask for all these things, and we give thanks for these things. Amen.